From the treasury box buried beneath the golden halls of Motekutsoma, to the golden pitcher poured into the porches of your ears. This week, Andy and I speak with Christian Langalis, sometimes called the Bitcoin Sign Guy, about that fateful day with the Fed, and yelling to anyone with eyes to hear to buy Bitcoin. Then, we discuss how he went from Bitcoin maximalism to er-Bitcoin maximalism. Welcome to The Stack. You're the guy who held up the Bitcoin sign behind the Federal Reserve Chair, uh, Janet Yellen at the time. Yeah, so sorry I have to bring it up. That's you. You held up a you know, buy Bitcoin sign and sort of became famous for it. And then uh, what I want to do is how did you get your start with Bitcoin? And then what got you to holding up the to the point that you were holding up a, a Bitcoin sign behind Janet Yellen on C-SPAN? And then what got you from there to deciding I need to go to uh, work for Talon and integrate Bitcoin with Urbit? Uh, first of all, thanks so much, guys, for having me on. It's a it's a pleasure. Yeah, my Bitcoin Genesis story. The Bitcoin sign incident was when I was working at uh, the Cato Institute, fresh out of college. And I was working under George Selgin there in the Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And well, I guess there's backstory to why I was there. Uh, previously, you know, all, always growing up in Connecticut, I wanted to go work in finance and, you know, markets were my my fascination. Though, as I wrapped up internship points uh, at a variety of different financial institutions, hedge funds here in Connecticut, I worked at a currency trading desk in Argentina and some other roles, you could see some of the sort of false premises of free markets, at least uh, as far as, uh, you know, financial markets are concerned. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, outsized influence by monetary officials on price levels. And so this was uh, somewhat of a disillusionment. I, the, the Keynesianism blue pill was just too big to swallow since I had always sort of been attracted to the market libertarianism of, you know, Friedman and Hayek, just as a, you know, a normie kid in, in high school interested in such things. So I found Bitcoin on, you know, the, the third, you know, you know how it takes a few times to hear Bitcoin before you uh, actually take to it. So uh, unfortunately, I, I sort of re-found Bitcoin for real when I was in my junior year of college and uh, decided that, you know, yep, this was totally the antidote to some of the abuses that I had become familiar with in my uh, variety of internships. And so I decided to go study Bitcoin, of course, um, rather than just going to work on it. I, I guess or it was it. sort of a timid approach. But I, I went to Cato to learn a little bit more about, you know, the principles of money. And, uh, you know, it, 
in the meantime, you know, just be a, a policy intern for a, a summer. And that, what year is this, uh, Christian? What year was that? That was uh, that was 2017. Okay. And so the hearing that I was at is just sort of the annual or the semi-annual Humphrey Hawkins testimony that the Fed gives to Congress. So essentially, the chair of the Fed goes to Congress and basically every congressman who is involved in the House or Senate financial services committees, they get to perform and you know get in their punch on the Fed because everyone everyone likes to break bad on them. They have even even the uh, even the senators for whom you know the Fed is a the, the perfect handmaiden. They, they still are just so critical. But anyway, it's sort of a moment of... Um, was well, Dr. Paul still in the Congre- the House of Representatives, the father? Was uh, he still there or had he retired at I, that point? I believe he had retired at that point. I mean, he yeah, he, he was probably gone since he wasn't there. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, uh, because because the it's a testimony and it's not a just a routine statement the fed officials or the the chair of the fed is is in an extremely defensive posture they have to sort of guard their guard their words very very carefully since you know i don't know if you know the back history of uh, green speak or fed speak but basically every every word that the fed ever utters is meticulously analyzed and and coded you know, extreme, extremely coded language that they use to uh, intimate their their views of the market, such that they might, you know, influence interest rates one way or the other. Yeah, uh, Christian, if I can interrupt the um, because professionally, so I'm I'm in the finance industry. For those who aren't familiar, what this means is Wall Street brokers or whatever will take a copy of any uh, Fed announcement or speech and send to investors or clients just like a side-by-side comparison of every single word that was changed. And so if an and is removed in some sentence or the degree of an uh, adjective is changed or a modifier, then that that is flagged and given you know, sort of a, a code of, well, this is more dovish, meaning we expect uh, lower interest rates out of this to stimulate the economy, they claim, or or more hawkish. And so it, it is really analyzed in very granular, even excessively granular detail. And so they are, these statements are designed this way, you know, just very sensitive that any sort of change in wording could have massive uh, effects on both U.S. and global investor behavior. But go on. Right. No. Thank you. Thank you for the explanation. So yeah, these these statements are meticulously crafted, and it's really you know a high wire act from a semiotic standpoint. And so the the great thing about or the the reason why the Humphrey Hawkins testimony is sort of a, a moment of such great vulnerability is because it's with with the exception of their opening statement it's basically unscripted 
two and a half or three hour hour long testimony where the person in the hot seat in this case janet yellen has to maintain sort of those the vocabulary that is on in line with their uh message for the market while simultaneously satisfying aggressive congressman. So it's really quite uh, funny in that regard. And so, you know, knowing... What was your impression, Christian, you know, having sat in there? And I have my own opinion, but, you know, when you think of how actually informed... Did any of them seem like they had the smallest grasp of what the Fed does what monetary policy even is or was it entirely performative right i would say that there's there's three i would say that there's three types of congressmen in that regard there's one that's basically just vanilla lib who simply wants the fed to just keep rates as low as possible for as long as possible because you know their constituents need the stimulus right like oh please just keep the rates low so they're they're one type and the the second type is you know ones who quietly get it and they they're aware of the sort of technocratic central banking mode and so they don't really challenge the fed at all they those are sort of softball questions and then there's the third category which is people who have read you know just enough austrian theory to be dangerous and dangerous yeah and uh you know they they instigate for uh, you know audit the fed or whatever whatever those uh talking points might be uh, which is interesting i mean if so when you talk about the constituencies liberal constituencies that want lower rates because really i mean it, it benefits asset owners more more than anybody um, of course and and, and, they... and and so and some debtors but i mean like you know if you if i think about the modal so-called liberal congressman i mean like a, a, a big part of their base would just be like maybe maybe indebted i don't know but like almost like completely out of the system and actually you know more of the support would come from like a jerry nadler you know wall street type but but what what are you kind of getting at there right i mean i think it's it's sort of the the cantillon insider swindle basically of you know the 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 joke is or not joke but the sort of the way it goes is that uh, asset prices are inflated with the promise that well this is this is good for you know the person at the who runs the bodega or whatever right right and so you know that's we could we could go into why you know that that might not be <laughs> A, tr- a true statement but um at any rate that was the seat i was in i i filed in on that day in sort of an un in sort of a uh, you line up outside those committee hearing rooms and so i was seated behind janet in just by you know an accident basically but i i did know from having worked at uh 
several several funds that you know the camera would be on and that all of my old colleagues would be probably glued to the screen uh and so i it was more just a uh, you know a sort of high high pop uh i'm on tv moment more than you know some ideological uh john wilkes boothing of uh <laughs> of of monetary had, policy had you had you made the sign no beforehand it, no it, it was uh, i think mike posey was the marker yeah. it was it mike was on a posey legal path asking, i think right yeah he was asking janet about you know the, the auditability of the fed and so it was really a, a spur of the moment decision to scribble up a, a sign and uh <laughs> hoist it over her shoulder I mean, I, I, I was, I was totally a fan of Bitcoin at that point, and I was, you know, I had taken, I had taken the orange pill, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't meant to be anything more than just a, you know, personal, personal keepsake. Yeah, like two thousand seventeen. So where, where in that kind of initial. I don't know. I, I don't I almost don't want to call it a bubble. Um uh, so that that was before that, the bubble. I'll I'll totally yeah, take yeah. credit for the You're the reason bubble. Yeah. That, I yeah. mean, yeah, look, I yeah, look, I think look, look honestly I, you should look what you I should did, not man. <laughs> um you you should not uh say that in a joking way. I mean, I I think that I mean, I I remember the incident, right? I didn't know it was you. I didn't know you, you know, but it was um something that certainly reached the attention of you know the investment community more because like you said i mean people were paying attention to the fed and there probably was not as much aware i mean there was some you know kind of goofing i mean a, a broker that i work with and and still keep in touch with though he's not in the industry anymore but he was um he was the guy who introduced me to the the concept of Bitcoin in a real way, my wife had gotten very interested in it in uh, 2013, and of course, I kind of like blew it off. And if I had you know put some money into it, I wouldn't be working anymore. But like um, the uh, you know he he introduced me to it, and so we kind of like watched that bubble and everything. But you know it's interesting because now as we've uh, reached or even surpassed the um, the price levels there. I think there's a um, a real difference in the uh, the actual real money uh, sort of asset manager wealth manager world taking uh, Bitcoin uh, in particular. You know, not the rest of cryptocurrencies yet, though I think that could be coming. But taking it much more seriously as an asset class. You know when. When I would ask uh, asset allocators in, you know, working with endowments or foundations, which would be uh, typically the uh, first movers in this kind of area, um, yeah, I guess family offices, meaning sort of those that manage money for, you know, the Walton family, you know, billions of dollars, they, they'll be the most aggressive um, because they have the most flexibility, um, you know, the the fewest constraints by their clients and everything. Uh, legally, they can kind of do anything. But endowments and foundations would be next. And 
when I brought it up with them in, say, 2015, 2016, just out of curiosity, how are you approaching this? The response was basically, well, why would we invest in something that only exists for um, drug dealers or, you know, only exists so you can do something illegal? And the difference is now, I mean, I I was on, I called a uh, a friend who uh, works for one of the um, uh, state pensions and they would be the most cons- typically the, the more conservative side because you know obviously there's there's blowback and political sensitivities with almost anything that they do and um you know I asked hey you know how how are you guys looking at at these things expecting to kind of be dismissed um if not in the same way and uh, the the answer was surprisingly open. Now they are years away from directly investing in in Bitcoin. However, you know if a if a fund manager that they look at for say uh, global macro currency rates type things themselves wanted to have some allocation to Bitcoin, they they expected that they would be able to get it through their investment committee. You know, and not that they would seek out somebody doing that, but it wouldn't be uh, dismissed. And I think the next, I mean, you see with Stanley Druckenmiller, you know, and some other, and he's, uh, I think, even perhaps a better investor than his mentor, George Soros, but, you know, that he's talking about and, and has made real allocations to Bitcoin as an asset class. Right. Uh, People, I think, don't don't appreciate what a big deal that is, you know. And he has a lot of influence, you know, with with certain endowments uh, and everything course, yeah. that 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 will will move, you know, real money into this space. But, anyways, that's a long way of saying. I mean, I think that you know, you're doing that actually did a non-trivial contribution to bring this to a, a much wider audience. Oh, well, well, thank you. Uh, I mean, the it's. With all these things, it's just is is the word in the room? Is it <laughs> does it does it exist in the in the mind of of whoever is you know on the on the investment committee? So so yeah, that that's I guess the the takeaway. And yeah, obviously now there's been a huge a massive warming of sentiment toward Bitcoin among institutional investors. I don't know if you saw the latest Fidelity survey results but incredibly well fidelity is interesting i mean not to get kind of like too into the weeds there i mean fidelity was another uh institution that was very early in it although in ways that i don't quite understand because i haven't looked into it that much but i mean i i think they were actually like getting messed up in like mining oh yeah um, abby, jo- that abby johnson had a bitcoin miner in her office well this is this is what i've not been clear on is how much of it was the johnson family and then it got you know spun in the media as uh fidelity getting sure no but um, but beyond yeah. it's it's far beyond fidelity they they have a an institutional investor survey that they circulate and according to the last results i won't i won't venture a number because i'll probably be off but far more basically all sort of white shoe yale model endowments are are interested in the stuff and more vanilla pension and mutual funds are not far behind. Yeah. Let me, um, just for the folks at home, the Yale model 
endowment comes out of uh, David Swenson, obviously the CEO, the CIO rather, the CIO at uh, Yale University, who really modernized the uh, what's called the endowment model of asset allocation. And so he he came in. Uh, he had been at uh, Credit Suisse, I think, invented. Uh, the uh, foreign currency swap for General Electric there and uh, was invited to come back to Yale where he had gotten his PhD to to run the endowment, which at that time in the 1980s, I can't remember what year, he, it would have been like a billion dollars or something. And so he, he took that over and really changed the way that it was invested. It had been it invested in you know certain stocks you know had uh, properties around uh, the New Haven area. It it just it wasn't run as a portfolio like so it was not run in a way that was efficiently matching its uh, you know risk and return profile. So anyway, so he he looked at it, he modernized it, and what that meant was investing a lot more in asset classes like private equity, uh, timber, some real estate not investing in uh, uh, corporate bonds, for instance, and uh, having sort of a much, much longer term policy view and everything. He, and he, he wrote a book about it that I think we can put on the website on uh, uh, portfolio management that anybody interested in the, in this subject should should really take take a look at just just to put that in context, uh, you know, when you refer to it, uh, what that means. Yes. And thank you for that uh, explanation again. What gets you from from holding up the Bitcoin sign to working at Tlon? What what makes you think I need to? Or, well, I guess I should ask. How did you hear about Urbit, and you know what made you think that this was the thing you needed to pair with Bitcoin to? Uh, or what's your idea there? What what's the reason for pairing it with Bitcoin? And sure, what makes you think you sure. Need to do it? So after the incident, I sort of made my way to San Francisco to work at a a well-known crypto fund there with the sort of sole focus of basically marketing Bitcoin to institutional investors. And uh, that's what I did for a little while. And then sort of went more toward uh, the the more crypto anarchist roots of uh, of the project and uh, decided to work on some independent projects to those ends. And then uh, in that time, I, I met some people, some friends who uh, told me about Urbit. They dragged me to an Urbit meetup. And from that point on, I was you know interested in perhaps using Urbit advantageously to uh, Bitcoin's gain. And so... That originally gave me the ambition of uh, building actually a, a peer-to-peer exchange for Bitcoin on Urbit. And as I got into uh, that project, it became evident that you know there was a lot of uh, it wouldn't be a quick thing that there would be a lot of infrastructural components that would have to be built first. And those ought to be you know handled by a company like Talon or, you know, at least managed through through sort of the the nexus of Urbit development that, that Talon represents and the Urbit Foundation as well, which, uh, you know, is, by the way, how how we have uh, 
Tim and Josh working on the project now, and uh, they're. We have to call him the other at. Josh on this show, by the way. Yeah, right. Yes, uh, <laughs> Josh Lehman in this case. So I uh, thinking about building this exchange. I realized that maybe it would just make sense to have a to to wed Urbit and Bitcoin together first. And uh, I, you know, I learned a lot about building basically building user facing software i had sort of never been uh you know so up up close and personal to it uh before before working at Tlon. so huge learning experience for me but we we ended up uh they ended up liking my idea i uh, to somehow uh you know marshal resources to get a, a bitcoin wallet for the urbit operating system and that's what i've been working on uh for about the last year and we're we're finally getting close to having to having a a working model that we can uh, show people is this is does this dovetail or is this exactly what um tim luck created or i mean are Uh, is this the same thing yeah precisely yeah they uh the the project is sort of one and the same. Uh, so, yeah, the I mean, I can tell you the the original motivation for the project was, you know, or to even make that decentralized exchange on Urbit. The original vision of that, or impetus for that, was that we can see the cybernetic collar, you know, growing tighter, practically every month uh, in the West for usage of cryptocurrencies. I don't know if your uh, listeners are aware of the Stable Act, but there's there's tons of people in Washington who would, you know, love to ban private no- or uh, full node operation and uh, KYC and AML. The permissionless uh, elements of the, the Bitcoin network away. And so it simply has to be the case that, uh, you know, individuals can, can operate sovereign software to interact with the Bitcoin network. And so this is a, th- this is also the ambition of Urbit, but from, you know, a, a non-monetary data perspective i mean as a server is a server is a server you know a bitcoin is a a payments and you know base money server if you will and urbit is you know a a personal personal data server uh for you know your social and hopefully hopefully more than just social in the future but uh they're both servers and so that that's really where I see Bitcoin and Urbit converging. And uh, that that's hopefully a, a cultural affinity that shouldn't be too hard to, you know, exploit and develop. Christian, would you call yourself a uh, Bitcoin maximalist? Uh, I mean, if you look at my uh, allocation, uh, that, that would that would certainly be a fitting uh, term. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm basically all all in 
on Bitcoin just because, number one, I, I sort of understand it the best. I think it has the, the clearest fundamentals, but also it, uh, I mean, simply, simply put, money has, it's the largest uh, addressable market. So from a, from a value investing standpoint, it, it's, it, it presents the best uh, upside to me, at, at least to, to my eye. There's, there's usually flashier stuff day to day, but, uh, you know, I've, I've always, ever since I, since I approached it from the global macro angle originally, it's, it's always really been about, you know, base money and, and never about, I mean, while I, while I have come to appreciate, you know, the, the elegance of smart contracts and, you know, programmability it's always been uh, about money at the end of the day for me money as a you know monet monetary good what is the uh what is the developer community like now and you know what are the ranges of viewpoints and you talked about kind of the crypto anarchy side of it and then you have now pretty mainstream investor types coming in but you know sort of how does that all work together right i mean it's a it's a good question i mean there's i I feel like i have a an appreciation for for both attitudes of you know the the hardcore crypto anarchists on one hand uh who want maximum maximum permissionless permissionlessness and privacy and uh you know they they want to you know they're 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 really the the creative force behind bitcoin uh without a doubt and then you know to for bitcoin to to succeed as a a global reserve currency i mean undoubtedly that that also involves the financial expertise of market makers and their affiliates that work in legacy finance now of course those people aren't allergic to regulation and i think that uh there there needs to be a uh, sort of reconciliation between between their two viewpoints in hopes that you know perhaps we could stave off you know a bifurcation of bitcoin along compliance lines i think that i think that that would be i mean a a less than ideal scenario for bitcoin you you would hope that there wouldn't be a a bitcoin gray market or or black market but still prepared for that uh for that possibility in any case how interested are you in questions of who satoshi is you know and you have some if i can editorialize you know folks like craig wright who are right yeah disturbed I, charlatans i, I can um, i can say i have basically no no interest in who satoshi yeah. is i mean i i don't even ponder the question anymore really i uh i think that satoshi was sufficiently savvy to Basically, they're 
their exit was uh, was so clean, and uh, with the exception of the 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 key signing to say I am not Dorian Nakamoto, I think if I I could be wrong, but I think that that was the last thing that Satoshi has currently said. Um, but I I think that they were extremely cautious to never uh, you know leave you know a a, a fingerprint on bitcoin and that's that's my expectation moving forward is that you know nothing nothing would ever come to light you talked about sort of what what urbit can bring to bitcoin in terms of offering a, a server that you know you, you you have a server that will allow people to run a run a node next to it so my question is what um what does what does bitcoin bring to urbit in terms of what we're going to be able to build in the future well, well, functionality, uh, right. uh, obviously. I mean, I my 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 greater design to the to the extent that I could, you know, ever have designs for Urbit, given that it's you know decentralized open source software, would be to my my ambition for Urbit is to once we have Bitcoin functionality in hand, uh, I would like to develop ways for commerce on Urbit to exist. And so this begins at uh, the very Urbit native levels of, you know, can you just pay for things in Bitcoin that already exist on, uh, that already exist on Urbit. So, you know, paywalling, uh, you know, access to different uh, data that already exists on Urbit. So, you know, access to a group or, uh, you know, can someone do an an Urbit-based newsletter or uh, an Urbit-based podcast? I mean, our, our pod, our podcasting uh, app on Urbit isn't, isn't built yet, but you know what, you know what I mean? You know, things that, products that exist within Urbit in a, in a purely digital sense. And then, you know, there's also the proliferation now of Urbit providers, as they're called. So infrastructure uh, services for the Urbit network that are valuable. So hosting is a large one. Eventually, we'll have, you know, content delivery networks or maybe, you know, in, in the Bitcoin sense, a lightning, uh, lightning channel management for uh for planets by stars and uh you know there can be other infrastructural orbit services like that and then uh, i guess the last uh the last thing would be the you know every every other ordinary uh marketplace that exists nowadays for for real goods and services so probably starting along the lines of you know something like ebay or or Etsy or something like that, but then ultimately going toward being a an accessible platform for anyone trying to sell you know anything. Do do you anticipate Bitcoin is going to be the premier means of monetary exchange, or do you see something else? Right. Well, I mean, without in- inviting a scandal, I mean, I don't think that Bitcoin <laughs> is is um. It's certainly not my preferred, uh, you know, monetary 
media today. Uh, it's still, right. it's still in the process of uh, being, well, it, in the process of becoming a unit of account, which is really necessary. So it, it's not really until Bitcoin is fully monetized that we can use it with with ease for you know daily transactions. But you know it it already is as a, as I'll point out a, a store of value and especially with the lightning network it's really becoming a a strong medium of exchange. And so you know we'll it will take at least probably two more cycles at, at least uh, before people will really want to use bitcoin um, to pay for whatever they're buying online. Uh, however, it's there. There can be there can be other uh, currency alternatives on Orbit in the meantime. I mean, we could uh, we could eventually integrate stable coins. You know, we could even we could even eventually do uh, just vanilla credit card payment processing for Orbit. So. Urbit will have commerce in any in any way, shape, or form, and and people will you know start using Bitcoin for it. Well, when it makes once it reaches their uh, you know their their subjective criteria for for using it, basically the goal is just you have people. We'll just separate the two concepts. You know, we want Bitcoin to be used and monetized and then we also want urbit to be a a platform that people can use for peer-to-peer relating online so as a as a buyer or seller and the two can exist together or they can exist independently and i i think certainly they they have a a certain you know positive feedback on each other but it's they're still powerful enough networks in their own regard that they'll they'll develop they would develop independently anyway there was something else i wanted to ask you about which is i believe you um this is i'm, I'm kind of leaving bitcoin behind now bitcoin and urban integration sure. and um i i do want to talk about some other urban stuff real quick which is um one thing that i think that you do is uh weekly you have a meetup is that right that's yours oh uh, yeah it? we have we have a yeah we have a happy hour every every Wednesday at six p.m. Eastern and no excuse me um, nine p.m. Eastern uh, six p.m. Pacific time so yeah you can you can get that uh, link it's not hosted on Urbit WebRTC yet it's still on Jitsi. Uh, eventually it will be on Urbit WebRTC, but the link to that is, uh, pinned at Timit Onnomi. Onnomi is, uh, it's Japanese for online drinking with friends. So, uh, you can find that link on Urbit in a variety of places or on my Twitter account. We'll, we'll link to it on the blog. What do you guys do though? I mean, besides drinking, just drink and have Uh, a conversation. Yeah, we, you know, it's really just, um, about building community uh, between between urban people, I've I've personally made a good number of friends, just people who are interested to talk about urban. Frankly, I mean, the, these are hopefully hopefully the the days of 
in-person urbit meetups will will return once you know we're we're permitted by love in the age of 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 covid is over yeah love and love in the age of covid exactly once once yeah this this age of covid uh can conclude but in the in the meantime uh you know we'll we'll be here uh meeting virtually yeah i I did actually come to one and uh that's right for me for me it's at 10 a.m unfortunately so i can't drink Uh, i'm at work and would probably get fired for that but uh i did sit into one i think you guys were actually talking about china china the whole time so i was having to um, yeah I was kind of like screaming in my head, you know, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to interject, but I couldn't. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to, you want to cover? Uh, I mean, just a basic plug that, uh, Urbit is, uh, there's, there might be a misconception that, you know, Talon is the, the all end all as far as Urbit development is concerned, but, and, and you know, this might keep people from being more, involved than they otherwise would be uh in terms of urbit development but you know the bitcoin work is being coordinated through the urbit grants program uh which is our developer fund and also you know urbit is in it's an open source project so bitcoin has had just such an amazing network effect uh within their sort of open source development community and uh Urbit Urbits is Urbits is great too, and we'd like it to sort of keep growing. So, if you're listening to this and you're interested in Bitcoin on Urbit, please please get in touch. We can uh, we can find important important things for you to work on. Thank you for listening please visit us at www.thestack.link or find us on Twitter at thestack.link, all one word. And please remember to like and subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes. I'm Josh, and with Andy, we are The Stack.